Hello and welcome to the American Sheep Industry Association's research update. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. To all our listeners, thank you again for joining us again this month. Uh, today's episode is all about setting up your flock for reproductive success. So percent lamb crop is one of the ways that many producers uh, gauge the success of their previous production cycle. And there are a whole host of factors that can impact how many lambs are born and reared to weaning and many of these factors occur months before lambs ever arrive. Uh, so last, last episode, we covered selection of rams. Uh, and to follow that up, our guest today will be discussing the ins and outs of flock management before, during, and directly after the breeding period. So joining us to provide insight on the most recent advice and technology surrounding this topic is Dr. Witt Stewart, who's the sheep extension specialist at the University of Wyoming. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for agreeing to this. Uh, before we get started, how about a little background about yourself and your current role at the, at the university? Yeah, thanks, Jake. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, yeah, I've been here at the University of Wyoming uh, in an extension teaching and research capacity for three years now. Um, do a lot of everything when you have a three-way split, but uh, previous to that, I was at Montana State as their extension sheep specialist for two years. And actually at uh, your stomping grounds currently, I was trained during my doctoral program, kind of working as a research associate and then at New Mexico State for the coursework and uh, education in Idaho, Oregon. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've been throughout the West. That's kind of my background. Currently here at UW, you know, since it is a three-way appointment, uh, a lot of our extension, I guess, we just try to pride ourselves on answering everyday questions for producers. I'd like to think that I'm quite responsive to needs of producers, but you know, that's, that's tough given the day. Um, we conduct two ramp tests here at University of Wyoming and then our, our research thrust has really kind of been multifaceted. I think, you know, uh, there's not many of us that are solely dedicated to sheep or small ruminants. And so we've got to be pretty flexible in our expertise or even our willingness to do research and collaborate with people that do have better expertise. So, Lots of trace mineral research we're doing, grazing nutrition, uh, subclinical mastitis work. Uh, we try to, to do surveys within the industry to kind of see where we're at. So we just wrapped up an internal parasite resistance survey, uh, lamb quality uh, work with lamb board. So we do a little bit of everything. We work, I should say that we work with a lot of different people. As you know, you don't get anything done doing it yourself in research and extension, you collaborate. And, sure. uh, Sure. We, we do that. And we try to integrate students into all of it. You know, you have to integrate all parts of your program to make sure that um, you're, you're training in the next generation. And we've had some success with that recently. So, Absolutely. so yeah, that's a little bit about me. Absolutely. So you're very diverse in your work in the industry. Uh, you're very well traveled. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective on, on today's topic. Uh, so to kind of kick things off, I want to start with a, a 30,000 foot question. You know, what are the main benefits of proper breeding season management and why should producers, even those that tend to be more extensive in their production style, why should they pay close attention to their flock during this time of year? Yeah, you know, this is the pinch point that determines a lot of our economic productivity and efficiencies for the rest of the year. You know, this, this event that culminates in breeding. Uh, so, you know, it's a busy time of the year, but I look at it as an opportunity to really maximize your productivity and efficiency. I mean, you have the chance to intervene and make sure that you're maximizing, you know, the number of lambs born through some nutritional management, 
getting rid of those wasted inputs, whether it be an infernal ram or you, um, and an opportunity to inventory your supplies and, and your feed. And, and it's just a chance to step back and look at your enterprise, I think, from a broad perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And as I mentioned, last month, we talked about selecting and evaluating rams. Uh, so I want to give you a chance to follow that up. Um, can you discuss maybe some critical practices producers uh, should think about once they've purchased rams and they've got them home, you know, before they turn out with use? Yeah, um, I think one of the, the important aspects is even just from the immediate 48 hours after you purchase a ram at a sale or a private treaty is, is understanding your quarantine and isolation protocols. I mean, I know this sounds very generic, but I think the reality that we have with, with biosecurity issues, we work really hard to, to genetically enhance our, our sheep and, and make strides there. To ruin it with some poor quarantine protocols would be pretty sad. So I, I'm a big fan of doing that isolation at least for, for 10 days. Um, I think asking questions from the people that you buy your replacement stock from, like what has been their animal health protocols, uh, what may you expect to be introducing? Hopefully we don't introduce anything, but one common scenario that I see here in the Intermountain West is we may go back east where there's, there's more prevalence of internal parasites just due to the climate differences. And, uh, you know, I, I always ask producers, well, did you, did you drench that ram when he came back to your ranch? And oftentimes the answer is, well, no, I don't have worms. Well, that's something that you don't want to be buying into your flock. And so I think quarantine is really important. Um, asking yourself questions as you bring those rams back, uh, we'll probably talk about breeding soundness more, but do you have backup rams, you know, for those inevitable and unforeseen injuries that, that occur? Um, have you scheduled in advance of breeding season well in advance, at least 50 days in advance, your um, your, your appointment with your practitioner to, to really look at those semen quality characteristics. Uh, I, I think some work that we, I just came across recently from our region and Intermountain West type flocks from some folks at CSU, uh, because I had a hard time finding this, but anyways, 30% of, of all your RAM battery will test as unsatisfactory or questionable in a given year. Um, and this was a 13,000 head RAM data set across eight years. And so I think that 30%, we, we can't have our head in the sand about, you know, the fertility of our rams. That's just something that we have to account for every year. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that is a really important component. Also, I would just state that, uh, you know, breeding soundness exams, we often fixate on the semen quality aspects. And absolutely, that's important, right? I mean, we know that, that the inability to to, to have that you conceive is, is a primary function of everything we do. But, you know, only 40% of those rams that usually fail are due to unsatisfactory semen. You know, another 30% is related to body condition and physical abnormalities. And so really making sure that you evaluate the, the locomotion of that ram. I mean, how's he traveling in the pen? Does he look stiff? Does he look sore? Um, in addition to those things that you have to look at under a microscope are really important. Sure. And so, on the subject, you know, sometimes we're constrained by when we purchase the ram and when we can get them to the, to the place. But in an ideal scenario, when should a breeding soundness exam be performed on rams? Well, yeah. So I, I think at a minimum, you have to go in advance 50 days prior to breeding season. And to some that may seem excessive, but if you've spent a lot of money on a ram battery, especially from some of our seed stock 
operations, you don't want to pull the plug on Rams that, uh, you know, may, may test poorly just because they're virgin Rams or they didn't respond well to the collection method. So I think it's important to know that, you know, the process of spermatogenesis is, is 50 days. And so I'm a big fan of at least 50 days prior because then you have some time to retest right before you turn out and then make some, some additional plans. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So let's look ahead to the actual breeding scenario. Um, we're thinking about how many rams maybe we need. So I want to ask you about that ram to you ratio. You know, it seems that three rams to 100 is, is kind of an industry standard. But what are some factors that may alter that or, or how do you see that? Uh, that ratio? Yeah, assuming that your rams are pretty satisfactory in both their, you know, ability to travel and their semen characteristics, I think the three rams to 100 ewes is a good ratio. Um, I think factors in our region that would affect uh, needing more rams than three to 100, maybe the pasture size that you're breeding on. I mean, I've got producers that are, that are breeding their ewes and, and range bands scattered across a huge landscape. And so, uh, sometimes we might even increase that to, to four. We all know that rams have an immense capacity to breed ewes. And so I want that to be a caveat because I always hear, well, I had a, a ram breed 150 ewes once and I don't disagree with you. There's work that shows that some rams will do that. Um, but I think for the most part that three to 100 is a good standard. Um, you may increase that and we could talk about this specifically, but you know, breeding maiden ewes, those ewes just don't display the same estrus type behavior. They don't have the intensity of, of estrus that, that mature ewes do. They don't seek out the rams and congregate around them. And so uh, breeding yearlings or, or maiden ewes, I, I would go uh, even higher, five to 100 perhaps. Uh, using younger rams, obviously, they're a lot less dexterous and they haven't had the experience uh, similar to those maiden ewes. They're still figuring things out. And so making sure that um, you know, that you have an adequate number of mature rams to, to uh, account for um, some of that, that ineffective breeding from those younger rams. Absolutely. Okay. And so you, you touched on it slightly, and I want to circle back to this. And I've heard you discuss some really interesting information about ram behavior and libido during breeding. You know, would you please provide a little insight into what to look for and, and what is good and bad regarding ram behavior during breeding? Yeah, you know, I, I think what's interesting, especially as we, we talk about differences in species, um, you know, the way that the cattle show estrus and, you know, the ram or the bulls seeking those ewes out, it, it is quite unique in, in ewe reproductive behavior that they seek out the ram and they have this harem formation around a ram uh, when they're in estrus. There's some other things like tail fanning, you know, that, that shows um, receptivity of that ewe to the ram. It's a visual cue. It's, you call it courtship behavior, but it, it, it sends the signal to the ram that that ewe is receptive. Obviously, uh, on the ewe side, there's some other more nuanced, you know, the ewe will follow after a ram like I discussed, but there's a squat crouch. There's other things that, that really give those visual cues to a ram who's paying attention and, and really, I think, are the reason why we see such great capacity in some of our rams is simply because these ewes reciprocate some behavior that really cues them in saying, Hey, let's, let's get bred. Um, you know, I, I think it's just really important that we know we have to understand that the ewe holds the initiative for breeding uh, when responding to rams behaviors. And so I think that's important, um, especially from a, a very practical standpoint, 
if we see a Ram distance who's, who's frequently not with use or user not around him, there may be something going on. And I think that, I know that sounds very subjective, but we all are paying attention to that because that's so critically important for our bottom line that those views get read. Uh, on the RAM side, Jake, I just mentioned briefly because I think this is something that we can do given the investment we put into buying RAMs. Um, paying attention to some of their sniffing uh, patterns, you know, 98%, the study out of Australia showed that 98% of RAMs, when in presence of use and estrus, 98% showed excessive sniffing. Um, high percentage were nudging and pawing, you know, licking, showing some of that courtship behavior that shows that that ram's interested. And I think even more than the use side, we've kind of got to be paying attention to some of those other things to show that, that they truly have the libido and they're interested in breeding use. Sure. Okay. And if you don't see those behaviors, that may be a concern, particularly for producers that are single sire mating or where there's a few rams. Uh, and so that's something I want to expand on too. You know, what are the pros and cons of using just a, a single buck versus group mating? Um, obviously, you know, determining sire would be an advantage of, of single sire. So are there other options to determining sire if you are group mating? I know that's a couple questions all in one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think single sire mating, obviously we have to be able, especially for NSIP and other quantitative programs, we got to know the parentage of our sheep. Um, I think one of the challenges and disadvantages, perhaps going back to the, the multi-sire breeding group, is if it's a mixed group of mature uh, versus young rams, there is some dominance factors, and, and you could dig into the literature, but, but long story short is those, those younger rams that um, are in the presence of older rams are, are much shyer breeders. Um, there is those, those dominance issues, and so they're not as active. So I think sometimes if you're in a multi-sire mating group, um, where parentage isn't your, your goal. Um, I like putting older rams with older rams and younger rams with younger rams. I think that, that takes some of the, the complications out of it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, single sire matings, you know, at Montana State, we had breeding pens because, you know, we were heavily involved in NSIP and, and putting those breeding groups together. You know, a marking harness only tells you so much. If there's semen abnormalities, those use can be marked, but uh, returning to be marked indicates that perhaps there was some, some fertility issues with that first uh, RAM use. So I, I think using some of those, those proven tools that we have to help us kind of discern what's going on is really helpful, like marking harnesses. Absolutely. Okay. So let's uh, talk about length of breeding season. You know, what is your recommendation for how long to leave RAMs in with the use? Yeah, you know, Jake, you're going to hate me for this, but I really think it goes back to your objectives. I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, efficiencies that we leave on the table by extending our lambing season to 60 days. Um, I think uh, those of us that, that, that have those labor constraints and have those resource constraints that we're, we're feeding in a, in a dry lot setting while those ewes are, are lambing, I think it's important that we cut down uh, the breeding time, time frame. I think real aggressive, a 35-day period uh, is, is appropriate there, but it really goes back to, I think, what your goals are and what your labor and, and feed resource limitations are to a large extent. How's that for a politician answer during election season? I do not hate you, Whit. Let's start off with that. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Uh, so I want to switch genders here. Uh, so one thing um, 
that you know maybe we haven't discussed too much is proper management of the use ahead of breeding season. Uh, so, so what are some recommendations you can make about the females uh, before they're joined with bucks for proper reproductive success? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think recommending that we identify early on those ewes that, that lose lambs and perennial, you know, we have annual losses with these same ewes. I think it's identifying those well before we get into breeding season. Um, I think the other aspect that we are all aware of, but sometimes we don't understand the nuance of it is, is making sure that we, we look at teeth and body condition score. You know, those things run hand in hand. If there are some older ewes with teeth issues, usually you're gonna see some body condition score decreases reflected there. Um, I think it's really important also to realize that, you know, managing the nutrient requirements of yearling ewes or ewe lambs going into breeding is gonna be very different than that of our mature ewes. Um, I think it's really important, especially, you know, this is a topic for a whole other conversation, but breeding ewe lambs, making sure that they've uh, at least maintained that, that minimum 65% of their mature body weight to have any success there. But also on our, our yearling ewes, rec realizing that they are still growing and um, they're going to respond a little bit more favorably, I think, to a nutritional treatment than perhaps our, our mature ewes would in certain circumstances. To, to uh, flushing and ovulation, right? Yeah, and we're going to get to that. Okay. Uh, but, but before we get there, uh, I want to go back to, you mentioned body condition scoring um, and how important it is to measure that. So, you know, how does a producer go about that and how often and, and when are the times, not just during breeding, but all throughout the year that BCS needs to be evaluated? Yeah, you know, body condition scoring is, is not utilized as heavily as it should be in our industry. And talking about adoption of technologies, that's one that we could all take a step back and, and really utilize uh, more frequently. We know that, that those ewes that are bred in a slightly average to above average body condition score are gonna have a greater ovulation rate, a greater conception rate, and they're probably gonna raise more lambs. So that's a relationship that's been proven across breeds, across countries. And so it's something that we need to pay attention to, especially going into the breeding season. You know, on, I'll just give two examples of how I've seen it used. You know, on the large scale range outfits that we, we have here in the West, uh, body condition scoring on the individual is a challenge. And so uh, oftentimes we recommend, recommend getting kind of a, oh, just, just looking at the frequency and the average, you know, randomly body condition scoring uh, a proportion of the flock and, and kind of making some decisions that way. I think our smaller flocks that have the opportunity to, to really do it on an individual level, I think that's really where some, some economic benefits can be uh, achieved. And more specifically, not just saying this is where my average body condition score is, but having a minimum saying what percentage of my flock is below that critical threshold. So for example, at breeding, what percentage of my flock is below a body condition score of two on the one to five system? Mm -hmm. and, and separating those out, managing those separately, especially if they're a high proportion of your flock, really is some strategic uh, management um, of those ewes so that you can get more lambs out. Sure. So how about some hard figures? On the one to five scoring system, where would you like to see the flock before and maybe you know, right after breeding? So I, I really think in our country, again, considering that, that those ewes are going to be nutritionally restricted at some point in the near future at breeding season, I like to see them at a two and a half to a three body condition score. Mm -hmm. I think, I, you know, you've got a, 
you got to mention that certain genotypes, certain breeds show and flesh very differently. And so it's pretty straightforward in our region, our Western white face type used on a body condition score. We see a lot of uh, similarities. There's just not the diversity where you go to the Midwest and start body condition scoring, you know, Romanovs or, or fin influenced sheep, you know, that, that deposit internal fat a little bit more. Um, I think that it has to be, um, how do I say this? It's got to be validated for the individual flock. And one last thing about body condition scoring, Jake, um, I think I, we do this as part of our sheep curriculum here. Our students do it a bunch. But what I found is repeatability across evaluators can be not very repeatable. In other words, it's, it's, not, it's not always accurate when multiple people are doing it. So I recommend uh, that you, you take the shoot full, calibrate on that shoot, and that really it be one, maybe two people that are assigning body condition scores and not, you know, a different person every year. Absolutely. I think that's important. That is very important. Okay, let's think about body condition and into the later portion of gestation. Uh, do you, how do you see ultrasound and knowing, you know, whether those ewes are carrying singles, twins, or they're open, and kind of the affiliation with nutrition and, and body condition, how does that all come together and how can that tool best be used by producers? Yeah, great question. I, I, uh, it's really important to make sure that if we are utilizing ultrasound, that we are feeding for those, those twin bearing use, those increased protein and energy requirements. I mean, we've talked about this many times, but I think that's where your savings come in is, is separating those singles that do have a reduced a nutrient requirement compared to those twins. But also I think it's utilized here in our region also just to, to maximize labor, right? I mean, being able to, to remove half of your flock that are going to be able to raise a lamb in a pasture lambing system as singles versus running the twins and multiples through the shed really is, goes back to that optimization of labor aspect. Um, I will say this, you know, is we talk about flushing and sometimes using that to stimulate, you know, ovulation rate, which equates to more lambs born. But if you are in a region with restricted feed resources, where you don't have the ability to put that weight on quickly and rapidly and with a tractor, it's probably important that you avoid some of those drastic fluctuations, just because it's really hard to put condition on a ewe mid-pregnancy, impossible late pregnancy and in lactation. And so I think it's important to to just be honest with what you're able to do in terms of putting weight back on those use. And if you are restricted, just making sure that you don't have those huge fluctuations. Sure. All right. So let's talk about those producers that do have the capacity to provide supplement and, and nutrition. You know, what are some flushing strategies? First of all, what is flushing? What are some strategies and what are the circumstances where it's the most beneficial? Yeah. So I think broadly speaking, flushing refers to increasing the plane of nutrition which signals to the ewe uh, kind of an artificial, hey, you can ovulate more, you're ready to breed, and um, it results in more lambs born in most cases. Now, there's a lot of caveats with flushing that, that I don't think are often talked about. I think one of those is realizing that those ewes that are responsive to flushing are not those ewes that are a body condition score of three on a scale of one to five, right? It's those ewes that are average or slightly below average short-term increasing their energy so that they do result in increased ovulation. I think that's one really important aspect. The other thing that, that I think is overlooked um, is that, that breed type really influences the response to flushing. Take, for example, some of our really prolific ewe breeds out there that are programmed to have multiple ovulations and have those multiple births. 
those are a lot harder to manipulate than perhaps some of our, our ewes that have a lower level of, of reproductive fitness to begin with. And so um, I think it goes back to most importantly, the body condition score uh, being below average that responds to that flushing effect and also making sure that we have an idea of what our current level of production has been and knowing that we see the greatest response in those ewes that aren't programmed to give us triplets and quads. Okay. And we don't have to get too far into this, but how about a little bit of advice of how to deliver uh, the supplement for, for flushing and kind of how long uh, that time period should be and, and what are some examples of, of a good flushing ration? Yeah. So, um, you know, the flushing treatments can really range from, you know, a good regrowth hay meadow um, to, to actual, you know, whole kernel corn, barley, peas, um, those, those harvested feeds. Um, generally speaking, I think it's important to, to be planning ahead for your flushing strategy at, you know, a month in advance, but you really can institute that flushing treatment at about uh, seven to 10 days prior. Um, you know, there is some debate on, on how quickly or how long you need to extend that flushing treatment into the breeding season. I think what we know now about how the placenta develops and that early recognition of pregnancy, I'm not a fan of saying abruptly removing that at a certain time point. I'm a fan of, of going at least two or three weeks into the breeding season and tapering that off. Considering our environment, we're on sagebrush step, dormant pastures, you know, 4% crude protein grasses in the standing forage, that abrupt removal of that flushing treatment, I think has some more adverse effects, but definitely seven to 10 days in advance and going into the breeding season at least three or four weeks. Okay, great. Uh, so we've talked nutrition uh, and let's just look, think about the entire gestational period for the ewe. You know, what are some other management practices that producers should consider doing uh, to improve their, the success of their lamb crop, maybe outside of that nutritional aspect? And on the flip side, what are some things that people should avoid doing during gestation that could potentially harm their lamb crop? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question, Jake. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw it back at you. You can even chime in on some of that too. I don't want this to be one-sided. Um, you know, one thing that I see that I am not a huge fan of is during that, that early period of the breeding season after we pulled out rams, I just think it's really sound advice to just leave those ewes alone. Uh, don't abruptly move them like crazy. Don't plan on working them. You know, there's certain anthelmintics like valbazin that, that can actually antagonize that maternal recognition. So, you know, do your vaccination and your working in advance of breeding season, right? Our, our abortifacient protections that we get in vaccinations, we do prior to ram turnout than we do in the second third of pregnancy because that first part of pregnancy is so, can be so, uh, well, we can really mess things up if we're doing too much in the first 17 to 30 days. Um, Absolutely. Jake, bring me back to the second part of that question or chime in yourself. <laughs> I asked you about, you know, what are some things to avoid? Uh, and I think you did a great job covering that. How about some things that can be done during gestation uh, that could potentially be beneficial to the use? Uh, one thing that I, you know, it wasn't in the original question that I wanted to ask you about is it's shearing. How about shearing or tagging ahead uh, of lambing and how those ewes are handled and, and whatnot? And how does that fit into reproductive success? Absolutely. So, so removing that extra wool around their eyes during breeding season, again, I think will help that you really show the breeding behavior and seek out that ram. Removing it from the belly and the udder, you know, is a hygienic response that we can actually make sure that we keep those ewes from from giving those pathogens to those lambs, from the tags that may cling to the bag. Um, you know, I think we've done some work looking at the effects of, of uh, 
late gestation shearing and how that can affect feed intake. I think if you are, which most of our producers, well, those that are shed lambing are shearing a little bit earlier in the spring before lambing. And I think it's really important that we make sure uh, that, that w there is that initial feed intake requirement post shearing, you know, up to 20%, depending on the climate conditions. So making sure that you have some added nutrition post shearing until they get some more regrowth is really important to take some of the stress um, off of that ewe. And also it, it, it increases the, the probability that those lambs are gonna get off to a good start. Absolutely. I, I also would just briefly mention, we have some issues with uh, chlamydia. You know, it's pretty endemic throughout most of our sheep populations, especially here in the West. Um, you know, I get the question a lot, is it worthwhile vaccinating for those? In a year like this year, the question is, are those vaccines going to be available? <laughs> I hope yeah, they are. Absolutely. Uh, but, but I think that is something that, you know, as you have, if you see an incidence of pink eye in your flock that could be attributable to chlamydia, that you have a good relationship with your, your diagnostic lab and also your individual practitioner so that you can get to the bottom of that and really, really determine whether that, those added, you know, animal health vaccines are going to be worthwhile for your operation. Right. If you see a problem make sure and, and keep that in mind for the next year or whatnot. Absolutely. Okay. Um, now, you know, we talked about what you shouldn't do and, and what may result from that problematic wise. Uh, you know, what is your advice for producers who have had a less than desirable breed up, whether that was from management or an issue with a ram as far as fertility uh, during the breeding period, you know, what, what's your advice for somebody that, Let's say they've ultrasounded and there's a bunch of open use. What, what, how would you handle that situation? You know, the, the first question that I do ask in our region that I hope isn't an issue, but you've got to ask is, is have there been some Brucella ovis issues in your flock, right? Mm -hmm. That affects both the ram and you fertility. And that may be a cause for some of that. Um, obviously going back to the body condition score, that's critically important, but, but even more so, I think it's worthwhile documenting it and knowing your historical production. I don't know how many times that, that when I ask, okay, you were, you had 12% dries this year. Uh, what did you have last year? And, and ranchers and producers are extremely busy, right? Yeah. But archiving that information and knowing you're running tally really helps you have some perspective. I mean, I oversaw the Montana Ram or wool lab for a couple of years. And I remember getting calls. If Micron deviated from year to year, there was always concerns, right? I'm saying, well, what was the running tally? And oftentimes when we did look at five to 10 years of micron information on their rams, they were really within average, right? right. Year on year is a very reactive way, I think, to make decisions on a sheep enterprise. Documenting and keeping records is fantastic advice. Okay, uh, one last thing about you know, breeding management, I should say, is you know, once you've pulled your rams out, often they are kind of an overthought. Uh, or an afterthought, you know, how, what would be the best way to manage rams once they're done breeding uh, for that kind of long period before they go back with the ewes next year? Yeah, I, I'm going to step on the soapbox, Jake, if that's okay. You can't Excellent. On a podcast, but yeah, you know, ram longevity in our region is a, is a challenge. And I think, I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think a lot of it can be remedied with just increased nutrition. And I'm a ruminant nutritionist by training. That's my interest. But that is so critical, especially ram lambs, understanding that those rams have a lot of growth still in them and just treating them like they are a mature ram, just feeding them a maintenance type diet 
is not going to improve their longevity. Yeah. Um, also understanding that breed types are different. You know, even think about the black face rams that you've worked with versus your, your well-wooled and, and, you know, well-insulated, you know, white face rams. I think we also just have to be honest that there is differences in breeds and metabolism and requirements. That's something that we don't talk about enough that we're discovering even on the nuance of trace minerals, right? Certain breeds of sheep uh, have certain requirements and, you know, we've got to make sure that we meet those requirements post-breeding. One thing that I didn't talk about that will really help libido in, in the flock, Jake, is making sure that maybe even as part of your flushing treatment, that those rams have the opportunity to consume some of that energy. You know, there's been work done that just shows just the immediate hormonal response from feeding a little bit of energy really gives those rams a boost. You know, they travel two to five times more than the ewes. They're focused on breeding and they're not meeting their maintenance requirements. So it is, it is par for the course to accept that we are gonna lose weight on our rams during the breeding season. I don't know rams that aren't gonna lose weight. But what I do know is that we have got to have a strategic mineral program when they come out of the breeding season. We've got to feed them an increased protein and energy requirement so that they can rebuild some of their muscle and also deposit some of that fat and really just be ready for the winter. We're turning out bucks here in December and January. I don't know if you've been to Wyoming in December or January, Jake. I have. It's real warm. <laughs> you want to talk about the magnificence <laughs> of sheep and their ability to thrive in some of the most challenging environments in the world? Come to Wyoming. I mean, that's a great story to tell, but we just got to do better about our post-breeding management. I won't speak to, you know, more, more temperate regions of the country, but I think there's probably some obesity issues in Rams and other regions where they, do can, they can sit in a dry lot or on a really good uh, perennial grass pasture. But in our country, I really think it's undernutrition and making sure that we meet those requirements post-breeding. Sure. And there's a flip side to that. You mentioned cold stress. Uh, you know, here I'm, I'm located in Texas ahead of the fall breeding season. It's hot and rams aren't, yes. uh, aren't trying, wanting to eat much. And, and so they can go into that thin. And so again, to your point, body condition scoring, use and rams, nutrition, very critical to the whole process. Okay. I want to ask you a kind of philosophical question. Um, you know, how do you see technology improving sheep breeding and breeding management in the future. Are there some tools or, or something along that line that you see being developed that will help producers meet their production goals, uh, even goals that they maybe didn't even realize were achievable? Yeah, you know, you're, I'm the not most nonspecific uh, guest you've had on this podcast, right? I'm just hitting very broad points. That's okay, that's good. You know, that is a great question, Jake, because I, I really feel like in, in academia and even in private industry, we're, we, are, we are always intrigued with the newest and best technology, right? It just mm -hmm. is a part of human nature. And I think we have to be honest with ourselves and saying, is this technology going to add value or reduce costs on our enterprise? And as these come out, you know, I, we could probably do more of that at the land grant system, evaluating these technologies, but really thinking about where they apply and where they're going to help your enterprise. Because like for example, the stock recorder. I, I have producers that swear by the stock recorder and rapid rep record keeping and inquiries for production data, right? They can do mm -hmm. it side. That stuff is great. But if you are not a data person that right. is going to be patient with that technology and find out where those labor savings are, maybe you've saved five hours just, just working on your computer by having the stock recorder. But that's up to, the, I think, the producer to really find where it fits and where it doesn't. Because 
adopting technologies that, that uh, are going to add costs and complications under our current systems probably aren't super fruitful. That being said, Jake, mm. I think even just getting back to basics, technology is a relative term, right? I mean, yeah. technology in the tech industry is vastly different yeah. than our inability in the sheep industry to really look at body condition scoring and breeding soundness exams, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess I would even lump that technology that's been established decades ago into the conversation that we, we can't jump over the basics that we know work. And last example, Jake, because it's the longest answer you're going to get today, is you know, this pandemic has really kind of pointed to weaknesses in every aspect of our society, but relative to the sheep industry, I think I have never done so many enterprise budget analyses with producers than in any other point in my career than I have now. When land prices crash, I don't know why, that's when we really start thinking about costs. We should be thinking about costs when the markets are going wild, right? right. Because that's going to increase our bottom line. And so Technology takes on many forms, but I really think in extension, we probably see the need to adopt more technology that had been developed years ago. Yep. Great advice. Whit, you've had so many great one-liners throughout this interview. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, you know, what are some key points that you would like our listeners to take away from our little discussion today? You've got, you had some great advice you know, what are one or two things that maybe you want to leave everyone with? Well, you know, that's a really good question, Jake. You know, I think those of us that work in extension uh, know that sheep are our common denominator, but it's a people business. And I think uh, lately, again, this pandemic has caused a lot of thought <laughs> on my part because I can't travel. I can't go out to ranches. I've got to do a lot over the phone, a lot over the computer, which I don't love. But I've thought about this a little bit. You know, producers are busy and they need to take time to sit down and plan as they prepare for these major production events. I'm going to get real cheesy and go back to Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in that, in the beginning, it talks about urgency versus importance. And, um, you know, we do a lot of things day to day. We fix fence, which is urgent, right? We pull lambs, that's urgent. But sometimes we are just putting out fires and we're not really doing that important task that may not be immediately urgent, but it's an enterprise budget analysis. It's a break-even analysis. It's, it's, it's really thinking about where our current lamb crop is and what our problems are. Is it predators? Is it animal health issues? What is it? And it's making time to do those big picture things, no matter what side of the industry you're working on. I think it, that is the most urgent need that we have as an industry to make time for that. Because if we do those big, um, those big planning events and those important activities, I really think we're going to get at why we're not achieving what we are and it gets at w what we should be achieving. So I don't know, that doesn't talk anything about sheep, but as you plan your day, Jake, you probably had a bunch of burning fires to put out, right? And I this did. was probably one of them, uh, but, but, you know, long-term planning and, and enterprise health are stuff that we just overlook far too often because we're just too busy. Absolutely. That directly applies to sheep breeding, uh, in my opinion. Okay, so you mentioned the pandemic. You mentioned uh, having to provide advice uh, through a, a various alternative forms uh, to producers instead of just face-to-face. -face. Um, you know, what are some, what's some advice you can give producers who are looking to find more information, be it about sheep breeding or just all things sheep um, that is especially relevant to their operation? I know lots of extension 
uh, folks have turned to online webinars and, and Facebook, uh, but sometimes that can be a little overwhelming. You know, what, what do you tell people? Where can they go to find more information that directly applies to them? Yeah, yeah. You know, I agree with you. There's been this explosion in the electronic medium, right? And I, I have been dragged kicking and screaming because it, we can't travel to ranches right now. Um, for fear of not mentioning all those resources, Jake, let me just put in a plug for the Sheep Industry Handbook, okay? Yep. ASI produces that. That is a research-based uh, resource for producers. Um, if you're like me, I like reading, and, and I like being able to go back and, and access something relatively quickly. For me, that text is really worthwhile. There's an international sheep and wool handbook that I also like a lot. It uh, gives me a broader perspective on some other things. But, um, you know... I guess I, I will, this is a good caveat for the other things, is that research-based information versus a subjective opinions are pretty important. You know, in an era where our state budgets and federal budgets are declining, I think that is something that we can hang our hat on. I don't make any more money from the information I give a producer. Um, I don't have any strings attached or ulterior motives other than to keep producers in business. So I think, I think it's, it's important that we, in our state organizations, that we partner with our land grant institution. I, I'm sure that there's producers that say, yeah, I, I don't always get the best answers from my land grant institution. And that's, we're humans. We probably don't always do that right. But when we partner with our producers and them telling us what they need to know and us getting answers for them, that is a synergy that's just, it's excellent. And more than ever, there's not many uh, resources committed to sheep research anymore or extension. It's, it's partnering with your, your local county extension folks and your state extension folks, your federal research folks, U.S. Mark, U.S. Sheep Experiment Station, uh, Boonville, Arkansas. I mean, all those partners, I think we can do a lot for our producers still. And I really think our mission at the land grant level is still relevant. All right, Dr. Witt Stewart, that was fantastic. Uh, thank you very much for those final thoughts and, and thank you for joining us today. And you know, for many of our producers across the country, breeding season management and discussion of that topic is very timely. And even for those that are on a different production schedule and you provided some really excellent research findings and philosophy uh, for folks to ruminate on and, and hopefully we'll be able to put into practice. Uh, so to all our listeners, thanks to you too uh, for taking the time to tune in with us each month as we talk sheep and science and the various ways that we can continue to maintain progress in our great industry. Uh, so until next time, always remember, eat lamb, wear wool, and spend a little time each day on improving your sheep business, whatever that may be. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks, Jake.